This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we're here to become better habitat managers. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Great guests on here today. My friend, Michael Back from Southern Ohio. Michael owns an outfitting business down in Southern Ohio and has a very interesting outlook on hunting, access, blind setup, and habitat. So right now, the reason we're interviewing Michael right now this time of year, first of all, Ohio is still open. But second of all, now is the time where you can see in the woods. Now is a great time to actually set up blinds or tree stands, or at least find where you're going to put them. You know, all the foliage is down. You can see where you're going. You can see your shooting lens. You can see the access. You can see what deer see when you walk in. It's all relevant in the woods right now. Great time to get out there and scout blind setups, tree stand setups for next year. So thanks for tuning in. Happy to have Michael back here on the podcast talking all things from blind setup, um, timing your morning hunts, and everything in between. Guys, brand new information. We just launched the Habitat Podcast Patreon group. Now, this, guys, Patreon is a crowdsourcing mechanism that helps people get in front of the best communities they can. So what we're doing at Habitat Podcast, we are putting together a group of the best individuals, uh, the biggest followers, the people who want to learn the most and get in even deeper with us here at Habitat Podcast. Um, we appreciate everybody's support. There's a link below in the show notes. Take a quick look. Um, you see, once you scroll over there, you'll see how you can help support the show. It really helps us do more extracurricular activities like, you know, a get together at one of the parcels, maybe um, a habitat day, a property tour, uh, maybe a pint night somewhere. Guys, we're going to close this into a custom close group of tight knit habitat managers who want to learn more and have access to all the knowledge that we've been able to uh, acquire over the years. So check it out. Habitat Podcast Patreon. Any questions, email me info at habitatpodcast.com. We're kind of new to the Patreon thing, but we're learning and we're going to build the best community we can. Thank you to everyone for coming back to this week's episode. I want to thank all of our partners here at Habitat Podcast and everybody who leaves us great reviews every week. Enjoy this episode from Michael Back in Southern Ohio. Have you guys used a Packer Max Cultipacker yet? I know that being the first partner of the Habitat Podcast, I've been using one for over five years now. Guys, cultipacking is one of the highest... Um, rated and highly overlooked part of your food plot system. It helps maintain soil moisture, keeps it in the soil, improves seed to soil contact when you press those seeds into the dirt and ensures superior seed germination for all seed types. I do not plant a food plot without cultipacking. Guys, Packer Max and Lincoln over there, great company, great people. They have five different cultipackers available at packermax.com. And they also have a roller crimper combo attachment for the Packer Max. So that's what I use. I can crimp, I can pack, I can do everything with my Packer Max crimper combo. They even came out with a six foot unit at PackerMax.com. Guys, be sure to utilize this piece of equipment when you're planting food plots to get the best success 
in your seed germination. Check them out, packermax.com. We have a code HPC25 at checkout to save money. All right, guys, we are back. We have a good friend of mine, Mr. Michael, back. How are you doing today, Mike? Thanks. Very good, Jared. Thanks for asking. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Thanks for hopping on here today. Um, how how we kind of found each other, we have a mutual friend, our friend Steve, who's hunted with you yeah. for, for quite a few years now. And he told me, Jared, you got to talk to Mike. He's like, this guy's got, yeah, some, got some different ways of looking at things. Um, you know, I've been in the deer woods a long time, and I thought, shoot, let's make it happen. So welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me. Um, as as you said, you know, I've been guiding and uh, field producer for quite some years now, uh, just bow hunting for 35 years. And uh, I kind of fell into this through the, the outdoor, you know, filming industry and got out of it into fully guiding and uh steve is one of my hunters that's been hunting with me for over 10 years now and uh yeah so i kind of partnered up with a good friend of mine that lives out here that grew out here mr brad blaine he's not here with us today but um partnered up and got legend valley outfitters going but it, it seemed to us because this is farm ground that obviously there's a lot of open ground you know the, the crops being off whatnot i had seen cutting my teeth in Benton County, Ohio, bow hunting, which is 70% cover, you know, this up here is probably about 60 to 40%, 60% being fields, 40% cover. And while there is a lot of big deer roaming this, this area, um, you know, within little blocks, I've seen, you know, the neighbors and other bow hunters struggle around here. And it's not just here. It's just about everywhere I've been. Um, and that has a lot to do with how they access the property, but we're roughly at around 3000 acres. Um, with 13 farms, you know, they're all dissected, but they're only about 15 minutes apart from all of them. But what we've done is kind of changed some things up. And it was really about how we entered and where we hit the brakes more than anything else. I mean, obviously, everything we do for whitetails these days, you know, food plots and hinge cutting or building thickets matters. And it's very important. But sure. what I've noticed more than more than anything is, uh, you know, a lot of people are willing to do that work all summer long. And and build their their hunting grounds up but when it comes to access and when and where to hit the brakes i've seen a lot of people make this same mistake and it's a it's a topic that's brought up in camp quite often uh, when they yeah, arrive I, in the camp and ask me you know mike when are we going in five in the morning and i'm like no that is this is not a that's not what we're doing here so it's really <laughs> about access and what i mean by that is you can't be alerting deer of your presence or you're wasting your time especially bow hunting them well, we're also talking about big, old, mature, smart whitetails, right? So sure. they've gotten this way because of the mistakes that we have done as hunters. And, you know, I know it's called hunting and no matter what you're doing, it's still hunting. But if you struggle with big deer, especially, um, I've learned that this one thing changes your hunting tremendously and is really about accessing the morning more important than any of it. Most guys go in, in the dark. And that is the number one way to educate them big ones that you're in there. So and not before only we get into that, Michael, I want to just before we get into the meat and potatoes here, I want to at least set the table a little bit more for for the listeners. So you mentioned you're down okay. uh, in, in southern Ohio. You, you grew up in Kentucky. You told me on the phone. Um, yeah. Talk about what these properties look like. You said there's more field than than thicket. But what, what what are they looking like? Is it rolling hills? Is it flat? Uh, what are the fields consisting of? What, what are the woods consist of? Let's hear a little bit more about yeah. the landscape so we can kind of picture ourselves there while you're getting into the the tips and tricks here. Sure, sure. Yeah. So obviously we are in farm ground, so there's more fields than cover. We're kind of slow rolling, if you will. We're not big hills or we're not flat. Um, with that being said, the blocks that aren't farmed, um, you know, you have we have some blocks that have big timber on them that. Uh, big oaks and things of that nature, which is obviously a food source. And then we have other blocks that are that we've grown up in the CRP thickets. Okay. Um, we've planted thick grass and, and pompous grass of this nature. So there were some areas of the fields that were not good for tillable land, but they wasn't really being done with, you know, for whitetails or anything. It was just kind of being mowed, if you will. So we've grown that up to increase the thickets, and and which helps, obviously. The more cover you have the more big deer you can hold with deer in, in general but um again all that stuff is very important and uh, uh but it's it's about where you hit the brakes at now you can have all the best thicket in the world but if you're hunting the middle of it uh it don't do you no good you're going past them or through them 
that's that's where our strategy lays more than anything else. I mean, it's very important to have cover for whitetails, as we all know. And it's the food plots and the water troughs, and licking branches, hinge cutting. We do it all. But none of that matters if we're blowing them out, coming in and out. So, <laughs> you, know, sure. you know what I mean? So, yes. again, it's about access. And that's the number one topic that's brought up in my camp more than anything. Um, every Every property is different in access and how it's set up. And uh, but every big whitetail is the same in the fact that he's a survival expert. He's going to avoid us at all costs, especially when you let him know he's coming, that you're coming. So sure. again, yeah, and I know I get right back into the same subject, but um, <clears throat> with with property again, access is number one. You can't access, you can't hunt every square inch of your property. I've seen this happen a lot. You guys think that you know they have a hundred acres or whatever it may be. They literally go from one side to the other, stands all around. And that is really the biggest mistake that I see a lot of guys make. Less is more, if you will. So, yeah. yeah, if my access only allows me to to hunt 20 or 30 acres of that 100, then you have a 70 or 80 acre sanctuary, and that's the way you need to treat it. And are these sanctuaries, Michael, are they like, are you using topography? Are you using, uh, you know, draws and, and drainages? Are you just using, say it's a flat piece of ground, a square woodlot? When you're talking about these sanctuaries that you leave for the deer, which which I am a proponent of leaving some of the property for the deer, um, explain what that might look like. Yeah, and again, so you know, every farm is different. Every little piece that we have is different. Some are in draws. Some are up on a on a uh, south facing slope, especially for late season. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you get in the summertime and they're on the north facing slopes in the big open timber. Deer don't want to be in a thicket all the time. And what I mean by that is. When the cover's on, they're laying in the wide open. You know what I mean? The open timber, if you will. As the cover comes off and the pressure amounts, they need the thermal cover. They move back into the thicker stuff. Um, briars, you know, um, obviously switchgrass and pompous, things of that nature, thermal cover, that all matters. And it is very important. Some of it we have on some farms has everything. Other farms don't, and we're adding it. So, you have to really look at your property and it matters what you put in there. But again, none of that matters if you're going through it, around it, blowing your wind. You know, it's you got to give them a place to live and die, period. It, it starts with that. And I have made uh, great, you know, great leaps and bounds, if you will, on stuff that most people would think big deer ain't living there. And it, it's simply put that they... They want to be left alone. And if you're left alone in that area, uh, you know, obviously hinge cutting and all that matters, but they will not live there if you are intruding on that space. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. How long have you been doing this sort of, the sort of guiding and, and deer hunting where you've been paying this much, much attention to access? How long do you think you've been doing it? If you don't care, I'll tell you a quick story, Jared, when I was 18. Yeah, love to. Sure. So I cut my teeth, so to speak, bow hunting in, on a farm. It was about 2,200 acres in Benton County, Ohio, that my friend's dad owned. And it was Benton County's big rolling hills. Yep. Um, it's 70% cover. But on this farm in particular, where the house farm sat was up on top of a knoll. And it was just open fields all the way around, you know, rolling open fields all the way around it because it used to be a cattle farm. With that being said, the draws had the trees and then it backed up against mead plantations, big thicket of pines. So our access going in, and we didn't know this at the time, we're walking across these fields at 5, 5.30 in the morning blowing deer out and wondering why we wasn't seeing or killing big deer. Uh, I was down there. I was about 19 years old. It was the rut. And me and my friend was sitting in the house having lunch. It was probably about 1 o'clock. And we get a call from the neighbor about a quarter mile down the road. Uh, his name is Bill. And he was retired. All he did was bow hunt. He said, come down here and look at this big nine-pointer I shot. We hopped in the farm truck, drove down there, and sure enough, here's this big old buck hanging in this tree in his front yard. And he comes out, and mind you, when he come out, he kind of reminds you of Fred Bears. Wore the same hat, gray-haired, shot compound. And he walks out, and he says, I counted the times on this deer three times. He went by me, and I counted ten times. I shot him. I got down and recovered him. He's a nine-pointer. He said, had I known he was a nine-pointer, I wouldn't have shot him. And I'm looking at this buck. I mean, he's probably a 50s buck as a nine-pointer. I'm thinking, what the shot that thing? I, I looked right at him. I said, Bill, let me ask you something. You know, I've been bow hunting these things for a few years now. I haven't even seen one of these guys in a hunting situation. And I hunt hard. What am I doing wrong? That old man looked right at me. He said, let me ask you something. Are you walking to your stand in the dark in the morning? I said, yes, sir. He said, there's your first mistake. He said, you walk out in the evening in the dark 
And Edith, I said, yes, sir. He said, there's your second mistake. I go into eight, I come out at four or four thirty. He said, you can't be walking when the big deer are walking. He said, that's the most intrusive way to let them know you're hunting. That's their safe time. He explained it to me. Now he could see the look of confusion on my face when he's <laughs> telling me this, because I've been so ingrained of, you know, getting up at four thirty-five and hitting out in the woods an hour or so before sunup. And that's the way I was taught. But I never seen no big ones. Never. Little young deer all the time, but never no big ones. And so he takes me into his house. He said, come here, let me show you something. Takes me downstairs in his basement. And there was 30 or 40 big racks on plaques. He didn't mount nothing. He said, every one of these are bow kills throughout my life. He said, 98% of them been shot between 10 and 2. He said, big deer especially move different. So that intrigued me as a young man. And, you know, I'm like, wait a minute. Everything I've been taught, looking at videos, watching this and that. And it's never helped me until this guy told me this. The very next day, I go out at 8.30 and had a big buck encounter at five minutes to noon. It was like, you know, October, or I'm sorry, November 3rd or 4th. It was the rut, but he wasn't chasing. And he was just milling around in there eating honeysuckle. But that taught me something right there. Even though I didn't get to shoot that deer, I see him. And that's half the battle, right? So oh, yeah. they got to be walking for you to, to, to harvest them. So, but it made sense. The more he explained it, he said, man moves all day. Deer move all night. That's their safe time. When you walk in the dark, even if you're not shining a light, which is my opinion, even worse, but shining lights even worse because they see you from a long ways. If you, it's like surprising you. If you was walking down the, an alleyway and I jumped around the corner on you at two in the morning, five in the morning, whatever it may be, it's going to scare you. And it's the same with them because we don't do that. And they know now that we're up to no good. We're not supposed to be out there. If you bump one in the light, when you walk in at eight or eight 30, they literally will just take a couple bounds most of the time and stop and look at you. You don't get the whole blowing aspect of them freaking out and taking off because really at that point, you just told everything that you're there. And if you're alerting deer, you're present, especially in the dark. You're wasting your time trying to kill big mature deer, especially on a consistent basis. I've had guys come into camp and tell me they've been bow hunting 30, 40 years. They've never heard anything like that. And I ask them simply, how many big whitetails have you killed with that bow? Now, I'm, I'm talking about age. I don't care what they score, and I'll go down to four and a half and older. The best answer I've ever gotten is two or three. But at that point, you've been bow hunting 30, 40 years, and you've only harvested a couple. You're, you're, you're obviously doing something wrong because you're let, literally letting them know, here I am before you even start. So that is the number one thing that gets brought up in our camp almost every time a group comes in, unless they've been hunting with us for years and they already know the, the drill. But I have learned that, they're survival experts. Obviously, we all know that. But it's, it starts with that because in, everything else does not matter. The wind, the stand placement, the food plot you planted, the licking branches you put in, the hinge cutting, none of that matters because <laughs> they're going to avoid you at all points. So if everyone could stop what they're doing about going in at five in the morning, they can they have to be in there two hours before light. They, their hunting will go tenfold. And it, I'm going to switch gears for a minute. It's the same with turkeys. Except with turkeys, you're going to move on them in the dark. Don't move on them in the light. They're moving all day. You know what I mean? They, they have great eyesight. So as you're hunting turkeys and you're running around all daytime calling to them, a lot of them see you. If you move out in there, set up and stay put. I've, I've had literally one blind kill five birds in one spring. We have blinds here at our outfit has killed four and five big mature whitetails in one season, twice. So if you know where to hit the brakes and you figure that little area out, you give them the rest of the property, it's just a timing thing at that point. They'll stay okay. there. And it's not to say they won't venture off. You know, it is rut, it is fair chase. They can go wherever they want. But once you give them that sanctuary and they know they're being left alone, it's just timing at that point. We've all seen it. Dear, you, you know, you've been hunting for three or four years. That's, they're smart. Even you doing it right, it still takes time. It may happen the first time you're out. You may have to hunt that deer for two or three, four years before you connect with them. But he will stay there as long as you leave him alone. If you start going beyond where you should be going or entering in the dark, that's when he goes to the neighbors or beyond. Okay. Well, I, I have some questions for you here, Mike. Now, sure. what, what are some, I, first I'll ask this, what are some of the questions and responses you get from your guys in camp when you, when you start telling them, you know, this is how you hit the brakes. Um, Cause I'm sure, you know, you're telling, you're talking to, to me, I've been, I've been hunting for, let's see now over 20 years. Um, yeah. you know, many of the guys that you hunt with probably way longer than that. What are, what are some of them saying that might, you know, some of these popular questions you get about this strategy? I have a few more questions to ask you about it too, but what are they asking yeah. first? The, the main thing is 
the number one question they asked me is why did we wait? And then again, I got to explain because they are full-time deer. We're part-time hunters. They live out there and man moves all day. They know that that is the number one question. Why are we waiting? And then they see the result of it. And then that's why they're like, okay, yeah, that makes total sense. It's really about the entrance and exit. But at the same time, I show them why we hunt the outside fringes. The outside fringes of the sanctuary, if you know he's bedding there, 150 yards, that's about as close as you want to get. So I show them how that works. And then I show them deer that's been living on there for several years. We have a deer right now. He's eight and a half. I've been getting pictures of him for five years. He's literally living in a 10-acre sanctuary. If we were hunting that deer wrong, he should have died a couple times in his life. If we were hunting him wrong, he wouldn't live there. That's just the way it is. They will not tolerate it. And again, Jared, if you will, if I kept breaking in your house trying to kill you, how long are you going to live there? You know what I mean? We have to think about that. They are a prey animal. We are the number one predator for them, not coyotes. Coyotes, I've watched coyotes come through and big deer be right behind them. I've watched, you know, coyotes try to chase a buck for 10, 15 seconds. They learn that he ain't easy. They move on. You know, they don't chase them like house dogs, if you will. House dogs do it because they're bored. Yeah. You know what I mean? Then they live amongst them. So, you know, the coyotes. So at that point, they know man is their number one predator. And when you get a deer that's lived through the ringer, if you will, the five, six, seven, or eight, he gets very intelligent because like I've told guys, if you get a five, six, seven-year-old or older deer step up on you, you got to know that he has never made a mistake up to this point. And if he has, he's only learned from it. Right. He's only gotten smart. I'd agree. So that's why they're so challenging. And you know, they're the number one sought after animal in North America. So that has a lot to say. You know, if people was trying to harvest me every time I stepped out my door, I would learn to take the back door at night. That makes sense? Yep. Yeah. So I yeah. guess, so here's my next question then. Um, sure. When these guys have been, have been, you know, hunting for years, you know, we all know that it could be the last last minute or two of, of light when he's going to step out. Um, are you guys already gone out of your blinds or are you back at the camp or are you still hunting at that point? No, hunting the evening is obviously a little different. And this is why okay. I say, this is why I say this okay. because the evening hour, it just got dark. You know what I mean? Now, with that being said, if you're walking and you get pinned, you don't have nobody to run them deer off with a buggy or a truck or a tractor, then obviously you're in trouble because you're not, you educate that standard blind getting in or out while they're standing there in the dark. It's the same as walking in there in the dark. Got it. So you have to think about that. If you're walking, here's another thing. Deer associate man walking with danger. They don't when you're on equipment. Why? Because they hear it and they see it coming. It's not sneaking. Just like the old man told me, he said, when you're walking to your stand, don't sneak. Just walk. Just be human and walk. Get in there. You sneak, it unnerves them. You know what I mean? So with tractors and buggies and plus you're not laying down a scent trail using this. For instance, our hunters are sitting there from, if it's a rut from 8, 8.30 till dark, we ride in with the buggy, run them off, run the deer off, so to speak. They'll just literally run out there 30, 40 yards and keep their eyes on the buggy. We get them out of the barn or the stand and we ride out. They're right back in there 15, 20 minutes later. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I guess you could yeah. set up your property to a way where if you're not hunting the destination food at night, you're hunting between the bedding. And maybe the destination food is, is a farm field on the, on the neighbors or something. If you're getting them to pass by and then you can get down while they're gone, that's better than sitting there on the cornfield where they all come and meet and then trying to get down. Right. So Correct. you can actually and, set and, up your property to to hunt like this um, with all the habitat management we do. Yes, correct. And, and again, it's access to that staging area, more importantly. Yeah. So yeah. let's say your access to a staging area, you got to walk through four or five hundred yards. Mm. That ain't that good. In other words, if you backed out here and hunted them in the field, so to speak, and you got pinned at dark, then you need somebody to come in. And it don't have to be on a vehicle. I've even used a blower, believe it or not. And what it is, you turn the headlamp on, start the blower up. You ain't running at full tilt. You're just letting them see you and hear you coming from the truck where you park or the house, whatever it may be, and then walk in. Keep your light down. Walk in. Here's another thing. You get to blow your foot trail out. So if this person's coming to get me because I'm pinned, that's what I'm going to have them do if we don't have access to a truck or a buggy or if it's too far in there to take a vehicle. Does that make sense? So, it does. But again, yeah, so getting out, in and out, it, it always boils down to that because once they learn you're there, don't get me wrong, wind is important. Uh, being brushed in or camoed in a tree or a blind, that's all important. Everything we do is important. But again, it starts with that, your access and exit, getting in and out. So if... I'm not a big fan. If I'm what here, let me back up. 
if I'm walking, I don't sit till dark. I have two stands behind my house. I'll give you a perfect example. One's on the inside corner. The other one's out on a point. They're both south wind spots. This one, the inside corner is the southeast spot. In 2019, I put the stand up. I hunted at 18 hours, logged in, about three or four trips, if you will, in and out. I never walked in the dark in the morning. I never come out in the dark in the evening. I always came out three, four o'clock. And at November 21st, which is my 18th hour logged in, I killed a seven and a half year old, 300 pound, absolute giant whitetail. And he was cruising around at two in the afternoon. Hmm. So if you, even if you Google, I know a lot of guys do this. When most Boone and Crockett's has been killed, 11 a.m. is what comes up. 10 to 2, they move different. They're a different breed. You're not whitetail hunting, so to speak, if you will. They're very intelligent, and that's why they're big, right? But it, again, it, they've learned this through all the stuff that we've done wrong as hunters, and that is number one, getting in and out and not letting them know you're there. So again, back to the staging areas, yes, if the access is good and you can get in and out of there, by all means, you can sit the dark. You know, there's places I know guys walk to in the morning in the dark and they slip right in. It's a 50-yard walk and they get in. They also don't do it until the rut. So I'm not, I'm not telling everybody never to walk in the dark, but if you do, it's got to be very, very once or twice. I mean, because, again, they get so unnerved seeing you in the dark coming into their home, if you will, that they, a lot of times they'll push off. You won't even never see them again. That's yeah. how they get big. Yeah, that yeah. that makes sense. And you kind of you kind of moved right into my next question, which was the time of year. Like it sounds like what you're talking about for the most part here um is, you know, November, late October, rut rut timing. Now, do you do you guys have hunts at other times of the year? Do you not book hunts then? What we do. No, we run uh, yeah, sure. So, obviously early season, we do evenings only. Okay. With that being said, you know, it gets dark around 8. We're going in between 3.34. Sometimes we let them walk in. It depends on how far they're going in. Other times we ride them in. Again, every farm is different with access, correct? So, um, And they sit till dark. With that being said, they're on an evening pattern, if you will, a feeding pattern. There's no real – I've had guys come in and ask me, Mike, do you got this buck on a, on a pattern? Yeah, there's not a real pattern to them. And what I mean by that is you may see him do this once or twice, but the third time he's not going to do it. They have habits. You know, when we talk about older deer, they're not patternable because if they were, they'd all be dead. You know what I mean? So they may, you may see him do something once and think, okay, let me try it the second time and it pay off. But at the same time, that don't happen too often. So the evening is basically a feeding pattern. We know they're going to be up moving at the cool part of the day, right? We all know this. So as a hunter with nobody to come and get him, this is a hard time for them to hunt. Same with late season. Most of the time when they're on this feeding pattern, not worried about rutting or does, they're not bedded very far from the food. So that it, again, it boils down to being able to get out of there more so than getting in because most of the time we all walk in the evening, deer bedded up, ain't nothing on their feet. We can get in pretty easy. Sure. Getting out is a different story. So Again, though, if you alert him of your presence in the dark, getting down or out or walking out of there, it's the same thing as walking in. So you got to have somebody to get you out if you're pinned. And I'm not, again, I'm not a big fan of the, I've seen them move midday, early season. Obviously, they do it more in a rut. But evenings only in the, in the early season, evenings only in the late season. In fact, we don't even start morning hunts till we get into Halloween week. Okay. Is yeah. that something that you'd recommend for the majority of the hunters Absolutely. out there? Okay. Absolutely. I'm trying, I'm trying to take promote. some of your program here. I'm trying to take some of the program and fit it into how everybody can benefit, whether they're setting up their property in Michigan, Ohio, wherever it yes. might be, and, and with, with some of your advice here. So I appreciate it. Yeah, and I've done a lot of farm evaluations, Jared, from Indiana to Michigan to Kentucky to uh, Pennsylvania. And again, everybody does the same thing. Mike, I need that 40 acres over there the neighbor's got. That's where all the deer are. I'm like, well, where's your stand? over on the property line. So you're walking through your hundred to the very edge to hunt those deer over there. That's why they're over there. You know what I mean? So I've always backed them out. I've never had anybody tell me that what I'm telling them don't work. I always back them out of their property. Like, look, less is more. The less you intrude, the more you're going to have to hunt. You got to yeah. give them somewhere to live and die. It starts with that. And then obviously the access in and out of places. Every piece is different. And I've looked at aerials and even helped people. But again, you got to break the mold. You got to stop hunting the way you've been hunting all these years, going in dark, come out at 10, go back at three, go back, come out at dark. They do it from opener to close. 
if anybody's yeah. got any body pattern, it's the big whitetails. <laughs> oh, yeah, with that. Exactly. Yeah. With that right there, especially. Yeah. yeah. I think I'd add to that even. Um, that's why that's why mobile hunting can be so advantageous sometimes, whether you're in a saddle or or whatever. If you can if you can avoid getting patterned by the deer, you know, like you're talking about, then that you're gonna be better off. If you switch trees every now and then or or keep them guessing along with doing some of the right things that you're saying. Um, I, I like that. Right. And every situation is different. Obviously you could be hunting the fringes and, and waiting on the timing thing and they let, leave them alone in there and then does wind you because they get downwind of you, you know? So, you know, obviously you're going to have to move from that because you don't want to educate the big smart doe. Right. So we got to get by all those other eyes, ears and noses to get to him. Well, if we don't alert any of them, there's half the battle right there. And by not alerting them, is simply staying out of there, especially in the morning, yeah. in the dark. It starts with that. Okay. Uh, what? Yeah. Our hit. Our hit list. I'm sorry, Jared. Our hit list oh, when good. we started, we literally had eight, eight, maybe nine mature whitetails. Now this year, I think our hit list was up in the 40 range. Wow. And it's the same farms, same sanctuaries, and it it goes to show us that that works. You know, we're leaving them alone in there, and we're hunting them out here. And it yeah. makes total sense. And we do kill them. Yes. And yeah. we've all seen it. The Lakoskis, the Kiskis, I don't know, just them, name dropping. They all do the same thing. You've seen their footage when it, they're out in the tower in the middle of the day. Why is that? Because they're leaving them alone in there, which makes them feel safe out here. Does that make sense? Because they're not picking up no scent trails. They're not getting bumped in the dark. Nothing. And then there they are. And it's really a condition thing. Every farm I've ever turned around, it takes five years to turn them around. You'll see the results in the first year or two. But by year five, as long as you de don't deviate from the plan, you'll have great, incredible, big whitetail hunting for the rest of your life. Guys, I want to tell you a little bit about my friends over at Morse Nursery. I've been planting Morse Nursery trees from their nursery here in Michigan since I've been doing habitat work on the 15 acres. Uh, right before I sold the 15, I had my apple trees budding and dropping apples. I had my chestnut trees dropping chestnuts my crabs, the pears. Guys, Morse Nursery has been around for a very long time. Charlie Morse used to run the show, and man, their, their tree stock is unbelievable. Um, MorseNursery.com, fall is the time to place your orders for the spring. Whether you want chestnuts, persimmon, apple trees, pears, oak trees, or any tree and shrub protection. You know, they even offer a survival kit for 10 bucks that will warranty your tree. You do everything right and it's still, you know, you get the drought or whatever, you still have a warranty. Morse Nursery offers that. Guys, they have starter bundles. They have a hardiness zone map on the website. Morse Nursery is my go-to spot for wildlife trees. I'll be picking up a load of the oldest trees I can get and bringing them down to a client of mine in Iowa and Illinois here very soon. I think if anybody's interested and cold hardy trees, tough trees, good genetic trees that have stood the test of time, check out morsenursery.com. We even have a code if you're on Morse Nursery's website, you wanna save some money, use code HABITAT10, that's 10% off. We even also offer some dealer pricing, Habitat Pockets, we are a dealer for Morse Nursery. If you're interested in getting a good nursery, or I'm sorry, a good orchard set up on your property. Let us know. We'll be happy to help. Guys, check them out. MorrisNursery.com, Habitat 10. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals 
are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Yeah, and I want to get into that next, kind of how how we're going to make a setup. But prior to that, are there any other tips guys could could learn from you who, like me, hunting 40 acres up here in Michigan, I don't have somebody in a buggy to drive in if I get pinned down. Um, I don't have a guy with a leaf blower and a headlamp or or anything. No, I understand. Um, so what what would you say to to those folks? I have a couple ideas, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, and I've also talked to guys who hunt public land. Sure. And with that being said, when you're walking, the farther you walk, the more risk you're taking. So back to the fringes, I usually have shorter walks. I can blow the wind more. I have more options to blow the wind. I've seen guys go right in there and they get right in the middle of it all and don't have a good wind. Well, that's because you're down in there. If you come out here and leave them alone in there, you got a lot more wind options. It's a little easier for you to get in and out, even in the dark. You know what I mean? But you can't wait very long, you know, because again, what do they got to do all night? walk around and find stuff. They're right in your yard. And that's, yeah. I've seen guys, here I go. They see us flip on the lights or if you're at the farm or your house, they see us do that, slamming doors, getting ready or starting your vehicle, pulling it up in the parking spot, slamming doors, getting out in the dark. And we don't do that. We do it all day. And they know that. So again, it's very, very intrusive. But if you are walking and you got 40 acres, I want to give them 35 of it. Does that make sense? It does. You find that one or two good spot. And even though it may only be a certain wind location, that may be all you need to consistently kill them. Do you ever use any coyote calls or uh, predator calls or anything if you're, if you're pinned down? I don't. Usually I just try to slip out, you know, and there's, there's setups obviously like, for instance, let's say you have a little hill in between you and where the deer are laying and your blinds on that hill and, Sometimes you can slip out of that right over the hill and out, you know, but again, when we're talking about nighttime, deer are everywhere. So the longer you sit in there in the dark, the more chances of them being in between you and yours getting out or winning you or seeing you, you know what I mean? So uh, it's very important that let's say you're sitting there in that place and you're hunting like you're supposed to, you're staying out of the sanctuary. It's evening. It's early season. You know, you're going to hunt them in the evening and it gets dark on you. Well, or better yet, you're five minutes from dark and there's no deer around. Get out. You know what I mean? Don't sit there until something comes out pitch black and pins you. So there's that. Blinds are very deadly. We've killed more big deer out of blinds than we have stands. Stands, obviously, you need to sit still because they can see you. The blinds, you can do jumping jacks in there as long as you're being quiet. You know, um, with that being said, there is proper ways to set them up. And here's one thing I can tell you about blind hunting. In the field, especially if they're a blind that don't have a sheen or a shine to them, I like double bulls for that because they're burlap, no shine. They look natural, if you will. There's no shine or sheen. Um, if they do, brush them in no matter what. No matter where you put them, brush them in if they do have a sheen or shine to them. Okay. But what I can tell you, in the timber, let's say we are working with a double bull. In the timber, open timber, you would put one corner of that blind. We hunt out of them uh, diamond shape, if you will. You have more room. So you put one corner against a tree. That's all you need to do. If you're in a thicket, you need to brush it in. If you're in the wide open field, just pop it up. But what I can tell you more than anything, what they see is the black holes. So if you're shooting expandable and you got to have no screen in the window, try to make that hole as small as possible because that's the bigger you make it, the more they're going to look at it. They see black. The screen helps with that tremendously. They won't even pay attention to it. If you're shooting fixed blade, you can shoot right through it. That's what they build it for. But if you're shooting expandables, you can't shoot through that screen. So you need it up. With that being said, you got a black hole now. It's either A, you set that up with that black hole all summer and going into season so they get used to it, or you try to make it as little as possible. We've seen it if you watch Africa hunting shows when they're hunting leopards. You see how brushed in and little their their shooting hole is because then leopards can see them. Big whitetails see that black. And the bigger that is, the more they're going to stare at it. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Uh, Do you ever... So do, what do you do? Do you leave them open all summer or do you close them? And it depends on the, sure. it, yeah, it depends on the make of the, of the blind. And what I mean by that is some blinds are 360 view and they have the screen. 
some blinds have the bow holes and they don't have a screen. So if I, let's say, for instance, I have a double bull that has, you know, one side's 360, one side's bow hole. Okay. 360 side has a screen. The problem is this 360 sides are great for a rifle or, or should I say gun or crossbow, but the bow holes are perfect for compound because what, of the sight window. What does that mean, the, the 360 side, Mike? What does that mean? So it opens up more um, long gate, horizontal versus vertical. You Got know, it. bow hole is vertical. Yeah, because obviously, um, you know, from a compound look, you, your arrow is four or five, six inches below your sight window. And if you're shooting out of the horizontal windows more, you'll hit the bottom material. I've done it. Got it. it, with, Got it. If you, especially if you don't check. But so they're more friendly for crossbow or guns. Not to say you can't shoot a compound out of those. Um, but the bow holes don't have a screen. So usually if uh, it's one of those blinds and I'm shooting out of that bow hole, I'll just leave it open. Now, with that being said, you got to watch what you do with that because wind can catch it and rip it out of the ground or wherever you may have it. So there's the other thing about leaving windows open on blinds yeah. um, because they, they turn into a big parachute at that point. If you're up on a top or a saddle or something like that, I wouldn't leave the windows open at all. Yeah. And most right. of the time, if I got windows open, I'm kind of tucked down in there and, you know, I got cover around me. So it ain't really getting the headwind, if you will. Okay. So you, you would set up with like, like a diamond shape, like you said. So you have a corner, you're sitting in the corner facing the other corner across a uh, kitty corner, if you will. And, and that's, it gives you more right. room. Your, your field of view might be a little better. Do you use any sort of those see-through blinds where you can see through the fabric? No. Don't worry about that. No, in fact, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up there because blind hunting, hence the word blind, right? So you're trying to keep them from seeing you um, and you being able to shoot them. It's, it's really about, um, you know, being dark in there and then not seeing through the blind. With that being said, the see-through blinds, they can 100%, if they get next to it from one side or the other, they can see through it just like I can. I've looked at them without i've looked at them with light behind them i've looked at them without light behind them and you can see 100 percent see through them if i can see through them they can too and it screens fake and they see you in there so right. if they see you move regardless if it's a see-through blind or not if they see you in the blind gigs up so it's important to wear black stay dark stay out of the window most guys i see move up into the windows or they open up all the windows that's a big negative you got to keep everything dark behind you and beside you the only thing you want open is right where you're shooting and okay. that upright is deadly. Okay. And I mean, are there any, I would assume that those see-through screens as well probably don't hold scent as tight as an actual right. uh, non-porous fabric. Right. And other than a scent-proof line like a redneck or, you know, uh, something of that nature, um, it's obviously everything else is open. With that being said, blinds will contain your scent some, but it, it's not going to be 100%, right? So, um, how, how effective do you with think that being that said? If it's not 100%, how effective, how effective do you think these ground blinds are at, at holding your sign? If it's not 100%, what would you put on it for a percentage? I would probably have to put it at about 50. Okay. Maybe 60. Maybe 60. And, you know, obviously, it depends on the person and their scent control, too. You know what sure. I mean? So we have learned that if we can split hairs more, what I mean split hairs is kind of blow it towards him. It's in favor of him a little bit, but in favor of you a little bit. It's not the greatest win. And this is why I say this. If you're hunting an area, let's say West Wind is perfect for you. A lot of guys don't pay attention, especially if they're getting pictures of them. If you write down the wind every day, and when you go back and check your camera and you see him in there, you'll notice that most of the time he's using the wind to his advantage coming in there. So let's say he's coming in on the north and you need a west. You hunt him with a northwest. So you kind of split hairs. That helps big time. Now, if I had a scent-proof blind, I'd blow it right out of his nose. But, um, you know, those are very expensive, and there ain't too many people that can afford to even buy them, especially if you're talking about a hundred sets or more, you know what I mean? Yeah. So for most of us out here hunting, we got one or two, three stands, four, if we're lucky, you know, blinds mixed in, whatever. So if you're, let's say you have one spot and you can afford to put a scent proof blind, I'd 100% put it there. And when you notice they'll, they'll be coming in with that wind in their nose, most of the time, that's exactly what you hunt it with. You have to leave everything closed on that blind until he steps in front of you. And you literally have to open it and shoot them literally quick because it, it don't take them but a second to smell you once you open that window, blowing at them. I think that's I think that's super uh, great information, especially for some of these higher pressure states. You know, I'm in Michigan and and those deer are going to come out, you know, with the wind into their advantage most of the time. So to be able to yeah. sit in the blind and, and lock that up, that would be 
that would be awesome until the very, very last minute. Now, if you're trying to set one of these up on a property, where where are you setting this up? Are you hunting over a bait pile? Are you on a food plot? Are you in a staging area? Are you in a transition? What's your what's a really good blind setup look like that might you know benefit the common guy? Well, I get it really depends on the property, Jared. And this is why I say this. I have a 19 acre farm. It's literally a bottleneck that we walk about 125 yards down a two track into a blind. That blind has been there for 19 seasons. It has killed so many big ones. I can't tell you how many. But at the same time, we're giving them 17 of the 19 acres. Does that make sense? Because our access is very short and sweet. It's just, boom, there's a bottleneck. It's nothing great pinch. It's probably at about, if I had to guess, the bottleneck's probably about 60, 70 yards wide. With that being said, we're allowed to feed here. So we feed them on the two track. It just stops them more than anything for a shot out of the blind. Now there's big timber there. And I've had stands there in the past. But I've always taken them down because they usually see it. They're coming, kind of coming off a hill or out of the creek bottom to, to come through that bottleneck. We play a west to a southwest. We killed our biggest deer out of there at eight and a half years old with a west-northwest, which was kind of blowing at his nose. And it was four days that guy sat in there before he connected with that deer. But it was when we split the hairs, his fourth day is when he killed him because he come down the hill with that north wind in his nose, so to speak. So, it, um, you know, there's every piece is different. So, again, it, it boils down to access. If my access back there to that blind isn't good, then you need to back out to where it is or go to a different area of the farm where your access is easy. You may walk in and it'd be the perfect spot to put a plot. You only walk 50, 60 yards from the road. No brainer especially if it's right in the middle of a thicket. Then get it, throw in some rubbing posts and some licking branches and a water trough, and you're in the game. You give them everything they need in front of your stand or blind. That's what I try to explain to a lot of guys. From the stand or the blind is sanctuary from there on out. You do not go past that spot. Regardless if you see them, and I, this, is a, this is a big deal here. I, I, I see this a lot. Guys will start on the fringe. They see a big deer in there, 60, 70, 80 yards, seeing them doing something, they move in. And then before you know it, they see him a little bit farther. They move a little farther in. Before you know it, he's off the, off the farm. And right. here's a better way to explain it. If me and you fishing and I throw a big rock right there by your bobber, you're going to reel it in and throw it out a little farther. Then I'm going to pick up a rock and I'm going to throw it again at your bobber. I just scared the fish again. So you're going to reel it in, throw it again. Before you know it, you're out of pond. Does that make sense? It's the same with big white yeah. You've got to get them somewhere to live and die. And if your access isn't good, to a, a certain area, then you need to leave alone, at least to the right. And maybe you'll get one or two shots back there. That'd be about it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I've been saying the same and, and practicing the same for years. I used to have a little 15 acre piece and I would not walk any further than my tree stand. You know, you, you have yeah. to give that to them because like you said, they got nothing to do all night, but go sniff around where you been. So if you're That's right. infringing on their area, um, they're going to find an area where you're not infringing on, which might be off your farm. I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, right. So, and little properties, in my opinion, are the easiest ones to set up and hunt because you yes. are limited. So you say, all right, this is where we need to be. We're giving them, let's say it's a 15 acre little piece. We're walking in, we're using a couple acres of it. Then we're giving them 13 acres as sanctuary. And that's the way you need to treat it. You leave that alone, less is more, right? So the less I intrude, the more I back out, the more deer live there, the easier it gets. Not to say it's easy, but it's, it gets easier the more you have to hunt, right? So let's say, for instance, when I get this 15 acres and I'm walking all the way through it and I'm hunting the other side of it and I'm not getting any pictures, and then if I do, maybe it's late at night, they're not living on me. But if I back out here, then they're going to learn, man's not coming in here. I can live here too. Now they're living on you, and that is the key. That helps tremendously. You don't want them just visiting your property to come in and get what they want, especially at night. You want them living there. I like that. Uh, here, here, here's a curveball for you. It might be a little challenge. Um, say you have to, you have to hunt in a bottom. I've been in some of the Southern Ohio bottoms. You got big hills on both sides, valley. There might be a hub scrape down in, in the bottom. Your wind sucks. Um, yep. say, you, say you have to hunt in the bottom. How are you going to set that up? Blind choice, not being an issue, you know, money, not being an issue, whatever that may be. You got the world at your fingertips. How are you setting that up? Well, usually a bottom is where the fields are, especially in hilly country, because obviously they're not planting or cutting hay on the side of a hill. So with that being said, you could also figure out the headwind. Let's say you don't have the money for a scent proof blind. Find the headwind that comes right through that valley. That's the only wind you can hunt, and it better be a stiff one. So because bottoms, especially with big hills, I try to avoid. But sometimes you can't. 
So with that being said, let's say the bottom, you, you don't have to walk 50, 60 yards to a tower blind that's scent proof. You can get away with any wind. You know what I mean? At that point, you could blow it up the, the holler. But if I have a stand or a blind that isn't scent proof and I need to hunt that bottom, you need to find out what that wind, and it may be something totally different than what you think. That's the thing about hills. Yeah. It swirls, it, it wash tubs. That's what I like to say. It wash tubs. I've hunted on top of ridges thinking the west wind is good for me, blowing it over their head, and it hits the bottom and comes right back up the hill where I'm at. So you got to learn the wind currents in the hills big time. And the bottoms are very, very touchy. They are. But yep, again, I would, if it's me, I would try to back out as least as possible. You know, I don't want to go in very far in the bottom. I don't want to walk up that holler two or 300 yards to where I'm educating more stuff around me. Does that make sense? Yeah. So say yeah. I understand the field in the bottom and the headwind. That's a great tip. Um, I've, I've talked about that mm-hmm. with one other person before. That's, that's interesting. You're, uh, say you're, your bottom, you have woods on, on both sides, big steep hills on, on both sides. You got your food in the bottom, which like you said, that's where the flat ground is where you can plant it. Would you try and say you got a, your access is from the top. Would you drop all the way into the bottom? Would you drop halfway down in a blind? Would you wait till it's light out? Would you do it in the dark? What, what would your thought be if you're hunting a food source surrounded by timber, steep, steep hills and your access is from the top? Yeah, the access from the top would be challenging because obviously you're coming from the top going down, which really you should just stay up top. You know what I mean? At that point. But if you're wanting to get down in there, then again, you're going to have to do it between eight and four. You know what I mean? And I tell that it ain't just hunting something like that. It's really hunting period eight to four, especially during the rut. And I've had guys, well, what if he comes through at twilight? Well, they may, they very well may do that. But a lot of guys get morning pictures and they think that's when they need to go in. They're getting morning pictures because you're not going in there. Does that make sense? Yeah. So again, access from the top, that's where I want to stay. I don't want to drop down. In fact, if I got access from the top, I'm going to put everything up there and I'm going to turn that bottom into bedding. And pull them out to hunt them. Yeah. Make them come up top to you. Yes. Give them everything they need up here other than their thicket. You know, so the bottoms are very touchy. And especially if your access is from the top, they're seeing you up here and coming all the way down in your winds going goofy. That's a tough one. You know what I mean? Yeah. It really is. If your access is in the bottom and you can only, you know, don't have to walk more than a hundred yards to the, to the plot or whatever you got going on in front of you, fine. Find that headwind out, blow it back towards the way you're coming in and go get in. Yep. But if it was me from access from the top, I would try to give them everything up there. Even if it's just licking branches, you know what I mean? You don't have to feed them or plot it. If you just build a playground of licking branches, they're going to have fun right there. So Keep the thicket down there. Give them everything they need up here, and stop dropping over. You know what I mean? Yeah, because as soon as you that, drop that over, would be what they're, I do. they're probably looking at you as soon as you drop over. So unless you have a unless you have a cut tunnel through the brush or something that you can slide in without somebody seeing you, um, you know they're laying on the other side watching, right? Correct. Access is everything with every piece of property. If your access isn't good to that, you need to find out where it is good to and hit the brakes. Period. If it, if it, I get my brother, for instance, I'll give you a perfect example. He just purchased 150-acre farm down in southern Ohio, and it is very, very tough access because there's one way back in there. And like I told him, you, you get to this certain top where he he's only hunting 30% of that 150. rest of it is sanctuary, and that's what I told him it needs to be because at that point, you're alerting deer your presence. You're going beyond anything else, if that makes sense. So yes. if I'm giving them everything they need right here and I'm walk, using – you know, just a third of that property, the rest of the sanctuary. And that's the way you need to treat it. Yeah, that's not it's always just a timing thing at that point. Yes, yeah, not always a, a easy pill to swallow for guys, is it? You know, how many guys are you no, telling this not. when they come in? They're like, man, what are you, you're crazy. What are you talking about? You know, and then you, you, yeah. you show them. Yeah, I have several, several hundred deer under my belt, not just from outfitting, but from farm evaluations. You know, I've been guiding now for uh, since 2009 and uh, I've done thousands of acres of farm evaluations. I have a private farm that I've been working on since 2008. And uh, when I started, uh, I'll call him Doc, if you will. When I started Doc's in 2008, I seen a deer in late August, told him about the deer. He didn't believe me. He didn't know me. So after he had an encounter with with that deer um, that year in a stand I'd put up for him on a point, uh, he told me, he said, Mike, you put the stands where you want them. You just tell me where they're at. He ended up harvesting that deer the following year. He did something that he did the year prior. Again, habits I talk about. No pattern habits. He just happened to walk through that same area like he did last year. He did it again. Doc was sitting there. 
And that deer gross 211 netted 197. Nice. Yeah. And uh, still, I'm still there. And now if you would see his wall, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. But he, uh, it's a private farm. He don't do no guiding or nothing like that. Uh, just him and his family and friends hunt it. And uh, they've killed some absolute giants on there. Very nice. Yep. Yep. Well, Michael, we're already, we're already coming up on on time here. I love the fact that we that we really dove into the access. I want to do more and more of that with with some of these topics. Um, is there anything, any tidbits of information that we missed that we haven't covered yet before we get into the rapid fire questions? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, other than you know, making sure that you keep uh, tree stands. Now, I will touch base on this real quick. Please do. You know. Obviously, if there's a tree you need to be in and the cover's not there, you need to create the cover. Whether it be a lock-on or a ladder, you need to create the cover. You have to break out your outline. I see a lot of stands just on a bean pole, no cover on it, and they will see you. You know what I mean? Um, I've had guys say, well, if I'm 40 foot in the air, it don't matter if he's coming off a 50-foot ridge and he's looking at your eye level. Does that make sense? So, again, if we get in that open timber, I've noticed that the ground blinds work better. Now, you're limited on visibility, but at the same time, they can't see you neither. That's yeah. a big deal. I like that. That's, I mean, that's one of the main reasons I went to uh, a latitude outdoors saddles because I can get behind the tree. And and if I see a deer coming, I can hide behind the tree. You're not, you're not a beanpole. Right. You're not sitting on a beanpole anymore. Um, and I know guys will kill them from tree stands and beanpoles and say you're wrong. And I get it. But at the same time in Michigan, those deer walk around, they look up, you know? So if you're, yeah, they if do you're here, sitting here. there 15, 20 foot off the ground and a big black blob yeah. to your point, uh, it won't behoove you. So let me say this. You need to hunt where the cover is, regardless if it's on the ground or 40 foot in the air. You okay. need, and if there is no cover, you need to create it. And I've done that a lot, pulling brush, oak brush up, um, you know, pine brush, anything to break up. Obviously, it's going to limit some of your shooting because you got to have it to each side. But it's again, it's about getting that shot to begin with. And you won't get it if he sees you. So you got to break up that outline, especially in tree stands. So you're pulling all that, all those branches and brush up in the tree, strapping it to the tree, whatever it may be around you to, to break up that outline, correct? That's right. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Great, great tip. I love multi-lead trees, you know, where you got four or five, six leads and you can get right in the middle of them. Yeah. They're friendly for compounds. They're just not real friendly for crossbows, so to speak, um, because obviously you're in between big leads. Um, but they, usually with a big leady tree like that, they don't see you in it. Okay. You don't have to put it there. Yeah. Yep, it's a big multi-trunk maple or something like that. I love it. Right, yes. Awesome. Well, that was a good tip that we missed then. Anything else? Another thing about trees, and well, even in blinds, when you're in the woods, you need to really pay attention to widow makers, so to speak. I'm a tree man by trade. So when I go in and look at tree stands or where I'm going to place a stand or a blind, I look around up. You got to look up. You may find out before you do this, that something's going to end up falling on that stand or that blind. So to avoid that, you definitely don't want to be there if you're sitting in it and that happens. Sure. Now, it's not to say that you may say, oh, there's nothing up here and it's still not happened because it is trees, correct? So, but I've seen big busted limbs hanging way up and guys have to stand right underneath of it, you know, or a, a dead tree's leaning and they put a blind where it's going to fall right on dead. Us. So you really ought to pay attention to that too, because that may change your mind or you can get rid of it before you do it. That's a great tip. That's a good, nobody, yeah. nobody wants to get knocked on the head with a big branch or limb no. coming down. Trust me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a great tip. Yeah. Well, all right, Michael, I got some rapid fire questions for you. If you're ready, we're going to find out sure. a little bit more about you um, with these questions. So all right, man. I'll shoot away. I'm ready. All right. Number one, your favorite beverage. Sprite. Number two, favorite venison or wild game recipe. My favorite venison would be caribou. Ooh. And I'd have to say that fried. Fried? Yeah. Off a grill, right. off a pan, it don't matter. Yeah. It's fried. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, do you recommend fixed blades or expandables when you're hunting or maybe some of your clients? Fixed blades all the way. There's no fail there. Which one do you like to use? Anyone in particular? I'm a slick trick fan, the four blade. Yeah. Um, I know the four blade whack and flies real good too. Um, I had switched from expandables to fixed blade. I was going elk hunting, wanting to find that that perfect broadhead that flew perfect. You know, you side everything in with field tips, right? And that's why we all went to expandables because it flies like a field tip. You don't have to move your pins. I went to the fixed blade for elk hunting. It flew absolutely perfect uh, other than the 60-yard pin, which is a little bit of drag. It dropped about four or five inches at 60 yeah. yards. I just had to move the bottom pin down a touch and bullseye. Nice. But I'm a fixed blade fan because there's no fail there. Very nice. Um, 
In your operation, do you normally use, and we may have already answered some of this, uh, preset stands, blinds, or mobile hunting? Obviously, preset uh, stands and, and blinds. Yep. Uh, we try to get everything done before September. With that being said, sometimes we go into September a little bit with our plots, but the stands, as far as being trimmed out or placed, or, you know, we don't pull our stands every year, but we do loosen straps, uh, especially on the ladders. Uh, the lock ons, we pop them down, let them kind of hang loose, if you will, um, and then put new straps on everything throughout the summer. We don't do it right after season because you still the, you have to check them again. And that's one thing about tree stand maintenance and blinds. It's nonstop because as soon as you get out there and get it all trimmed up and ready and set up, a windstorm or a big thunderstorm comes through. Guess what? You need to go back through and check it all out again. You don't want to arrive to your spot and find out there's a big tree that smashed it to the ground. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yep. especially when it's prime time, right? So it's exactly. a constant thing without doing it a lot. In other words, what I mean, you don't want to be checking your stand every week, but at the same time, a big storm comes through, you need to go check it out. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, food, water, or cover? Most important, if you had to pick one. Cover. Favorite habitat tool or implement? If you guys are doing a lot of work on the farm, what's your go-to tool? Brush hog. Nice. Why is that? If you're walking especially, you want your trails low. You do not want to be brushing anything against your body. Not any kind of weeds or briars or anything that will touch you. So if you're not using a brush hog, you can spray or you can go in by hand and trim it out. But whatever you do, you keep... Your trail clear, no licking branches on your foot trail. You want to keep that all in front of you. You don't want bucks scraping and licking on your foot trail in and out. So you got to get rid of all that. Sticks laying across your trail, whatever it may be, you need to get rid of that. You don't want to be snapping big sticks or even twigs. So it's kind of like that leaf blower I talked about. You need to keep it all clear in and out. You want to be quiet. Would you and have you definitely a, don't want to touch nothing? Yeah, because it's just picking up your scent, right? So do you yeah. have a um a strategy for keeping your, your boots clean to avoid the deer smell on your scent trail? It's really about where you're what you know, don't I see guys throw the rubber boots on, hop in their truck, go to the gas station, they get out. Right there, they just put gas all over the boots because as we both know, there's gas on that ground. Yep. People drip it, it overflows, whatever the case is, oil too, and then they go hunting. And, and they walk across these spots and wonder why these deer are blown. That's really, you got to keep those rubber boots, just like you do your scent lock suit, free of anything else that's foreign. And I spray them down the whole nine yards. Sometimes I even walk through water. You know, you, it's simple as uh, somebody walking through the yard and stepping in their pet's mess and then walking out there. You, you don't want to do that. So you got to yeah. really pay attention. Them boots are very important. Do you use any sort of um, carbon uh, material inside the boots, any zeolite, anything like that, or simply, you know, keep them outside, keep them free of the foreign smells? Yeah, it's really just keeping them scent free as far as foreign smells. I I'm not a big carbon guy. Um, I, I have a trick that I use for scent that, you know, some people are, are keen to it. Some others think it's crazy, but it's really about smoke, if you will. So how many times have you went in the woods and smelled somebody's fireplace? Yeah. Somebody burning. Oh, yeah. Smelled a lot. Deer do, deer do too. And it's a natural smell to them. It's not a, a smell of threat, if you will. So I still take my scent away showers. I still wash my clothes and scent away. And right before I go hunting, I have a little bee smoker. I put hardwood chips in. They smoke meat to kill bacteria. It kills bacteria on you too. You will smell like smoke. I've had big bucks, big does, everything. Hit my wind and walk right through it. Now, I'm not telling you to blow your wind out of deer's nose, even with the scent smoke on, but it has worked for me tremendously. Interesting. On yeah. fooling their nose. Yeah, it's about fooling their nose. You ain't going to beat it. So it's about fooling it. And the, and the smoke has really worked great for me. Yeah, that used to get talked about quite a bit. I don't hear so much of that anymore, but I've heard of people smoking their clothes. That, that, that's been going on for years. So good to that's right. Uh, last yeah, nice one, here. your your favorite tree. This could be something you want to hunt out of. It could be something you like looking at in the yard. Could be something you like for deer. Your favorite tree. My favorite tree. I'm I'm gonna have to say a white oak. You know, not just for the food, but how they grow. They're pretty and they're great stand locations. Now, with that being said, they can kind of hurt you in the stand location with with uh, acorns, if you will, dropping, <laughs> ping, yeah. ping, pinging on the stand. Same as walnuts or anything else, right? So. Um, if you do put a stand in that, that's where covering the tops of it and the deck with something will help. So it ain't hanging and, you know, doing that stuff. And there's another thing. Stands have to be maintained because if the wind blowing constantly, they're squeaking, they're popping. You got to really pay attention to that. If they're popping as you're going up, not so good. You know what I mean? So it's all about being silent 
So that's that's a big thing. But I would have to say White Oak for sure. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you today. I know there's a bunch of good information and tips and tricks in there. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this all again because um, there's a couple of things that I need to take and put into my game plan uh, moving forward. Sure. So, hey, thank, thank you very much. I'd, I'd love for you to to plug uh, anything you got going, how people can get a hold of you if they want to learn more. Um, and then yes. again, just thank you. Thanks so much. Yes, sir. Um, you can look, uh, look me or Brad up at legendvalleyoutfitters.com and our numbers are on there as well. If you have a, a farm that you'd like for us to take a look at, but feel free to give us a call. We're not that expensive like people think. So, um, I'm always interested in looking at other people's property and helping them. And, uh, we've done just that for the last 10 years. And, uh, I appreciate it again, Jared. Thanks for having us on. Oh, you bet, Mike. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Habitat Podcast. Guys, we will be back with another great episode next week. I just want to say once again how grateful we are for the listenership we have and the the loyal listeners you guys have been and supporters of the podcast. For those of you who want to support further, we have free decals being sent out to those who leave us great reviews. Scroll down, hit the link to leave a great review, and then email me info at habitatpodcast.com. I'll get you a free five-inch decal in the mail right away. Guys, I want to thank our sponsors. Vitalize Seed Company at vitalizeseed.com. Exodus Outdoor Gear. Packer Max Cultipackers. Morse Nursery. Acres.com. Downburst Cedars. First Light. United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.